Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you'll know that Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the most famous sermon ever in the history of mankind. It is the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you will be quite familiar with it. You'll be familiar with the contents. You'll be familiar with some of the passages, some of the teaching, some of the verses. You'll be familiar with many of those things. But I want to take a look this morning at what spurred Jesus to preach the message that he preached when he preached it. So I want to take a look, and that's why I started in chapter number four, before we get into the actual message, which is in chapter number five, taking a look at, all right, what was the situation, what was the circumstance that spurred Jesus to preach this wonderful, deep message that is a great help and encouragement to all of us? Well, we read the passage that Jesus was in Galilee. He was teaching, he was preaching, he was healing, He was doing ministry. He was busy. And while he was doing ministry, we see that a lot of people started showing up. The people were many. In verse number 24, and his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people. So you can imagine the number of people that are showing up to see Jesus. Over the last two years, you know, we had the, you know, COVID and all of that. And I'm sure that many of us, whenever you know, kind of the spikes in cases were, you know, going up, and, you know, we we saw all of that, you know, one of the things that we would often hear about was the hospitals, right? How many people were going to the hospitals, people were going to the emergency room, people were showing up in intensive care, and all of those sorts of things, and, you know, we saw the pictures of the tents, you know, outside the hospitals, and people setting up here and there, We, we, we saw all of that, right? Suddenly a huge spike of sick people coming into the hospital, and everybody's, you know, overwhelmed, right? We, we, we saw that, you know, we, we felt like, wow, you know, all, you know, you feel for the doctors and the nurses and everybody. Imagine if all of Southern California, though, instead of going to their various hospitals, ended up at, what's this hospital here, UCLA Harbor? Imagine if everybody in Southern California that was sick showed up at your hospital. Everybody. Everybody that was sick. You can imagine, whoa, what is going on here There's so many people. There's a huge crowd, thousands of people waiting to see Jesus. That's a lot of people. Not only that, the problems were diverse. They're listed there in verse number 24. They that were taken with diverse diseases and torment. So diverse meaning different or various. So people with all sorts of different diseases are showing up in order to see Jesus. Not only that, it says diverse diseases and torments, this idea of pain and suffering. So anybody who's got a disease, anybody who's suffering in pain, they end up showing up. Not only that, those that were possessed with devils. So if you have a disease, you were showing up. If you were suffering with pain, you were showing up. If you were demon-possessed, yep, demon-possessed people were there as well. And those that were lunatic, crazy people are showing up. So imagine this crowd, all sorts of different problems. People have health problems. People have emotional problems. People have physical problems. They have pain in their bodies and they show up. People are sick. People are in pain. 
people are demon-possessed are showing up, crazy people are showing up, and those that had the palsy, those that were disabled, those that maybe couldn't walk, those that had problems with their limbs and things like that. So we had some disabled people showing up. So every single kind of problem that you can imagine is showing up to see Jesus. Not only that, you could see that the, the sense of urgency was going to be pretty high in this situation. Because when you see in verse number 25, you have to see where these people are coming from. The Bible says there, And there followed him a great multitude of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from Jordan. Okay, There's a lot of different places. So I think I have a map here. So just to give you a little bit of a context of where people are coming from. So Jesus is in Galilee. He's teaching and preaching in Galilee. So if you're taking a look at the map, on the upper left corner, you see that kind of brownish you know, area. You might even be able to read it. It says Galilee. There's Nazareth that's over there. And so that's Galilee. That's where Jesus is. So everybody from Galilee is showing up. Not only that, the Bible says not just from Galilee, but from Decapolis. So Decapolis literally means 10 cities, right? So it's an area of 10 cities. And over there, right to the right of Galilee, you can see this area called Decapolis. And many of the cities that are circled in red, those are parts of the cities of Decapolis. So you have the city of Pella, you have Hippos, you have Gadara, which you might be familiar in your Bible. Philadelphia, there's a city there. There's Rafana. There's actually another city up north that's also a part of Decapolis. So people from Decapolis are now showing up in Galilee in order to be healed by Jesus. Not only that, from Jerusalem and from Judea. So if you're starting there in Galilee, you go down south and you see Samaria. We've talked about that in John chapter 4. In between Galilee and Judea is Samaria. South of that is Judea. So in Judea is Jerusalem, Bethlehem. So you see that area to the south. So those people are also showing up. And lastly, it says from beyond Jordan. So of course we know that there's the Jordan River. So at the bottom in the middle, you see the Dead Sea. And if you go straight north of there, you'll see another body of water. That's the Sea of Galilee. Connecting those two is the Jordan River. That's where John the Baptist was baptizing. That's where Jesus was baptized. If you go back to the Old Testament and you remember that Joshua was leading the children of Israel into the promised land. They crossed through the Jordan River. That's that river. So you see, you might not be able to see, but there's a river that connects the Sea of Galilee with the Dead Sea. So on the other side of the Jordan, you might see that area. It's called Perea. So you could think that there are people from there that are showing up. So people from all over are arriving there in Galilee. And we've talked about this before. When Jesus went from Galilee, from Nazareth, down to Jerusalem for the Passover, it would have taken him probably about three or four days in order to get there. So from Galilee to Judea would be a three to four day journey. So you can imagine all of these people are traveling in to see Jesus. So it could have been three, four, five days in order to get to Jesus. Now, if you're going to travel for three, four, or five days in order to see something, you're not just going to show up and be like, ah, there's a long line, never mind, let's just go home. Right? If you've traveled three, four, or five days, you're going to wait and see, all right, I got to get in. <laughs> I've traveled this whole distance here. I'm not giving up. I'm not going home. So you can imagine that there's this huge crowd of people. 
And they've got all sorts of different problems, health problems, emotional problems, some are demon-possessed, some are lunatic, they are crazy, they are out of their minds, some are disabled, they have palsy, all sorts of different problems, and everybody's there and nobody's going home until they're healed. <laughs> so you can imagine the kind of pressure that Jesus and the disciples would have felt in, all right, let's get things done. All right, let's get moving. We got to do something about the whole situation. But what's interesting about Jesus is seeing the people, seeing the problems that they had, knowing that they desire to be healed soon and immediately, and they would have been anxious in order to be healed. What he did, seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain seem like the opposite thing that you should do? If there's a huge crowd of people that want you, that need you, and you can do something for them, shouldn't you go into the crowd? Instead, it seems like Jesus is going away from the crowd. What Jesus is doing, and we, we uh, saw this in verse number one, and seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. When Jesus saw the multitudes, what he did was he focused on his disciples. He focused on that small group of close, dedicated, committed followers of Jesus Christ. Now we know about the 12 disciples, right? You know about Peter, James, and John. You know, we know about the disciples. There would have been more disciples than just that. There could have easily been many other disciples that are there. We don't know exactly how many are being referenced here. Maybe it's just the 12. Maybe there are others. But the point is, when you're seeing thousands of people, when Jesus saw thousands of people, what he did was he focused on his disciples. And I want to take a look at that idea. I want to take a look at this idea of, wow, look at all of the things that need to be done out there in the world, right? We're a church, and as a church, and as members of a church, don't you go out there and see lost people and think they need to be saved, right? Don't you think that? When you go out there, don't you think, wow, there are lots of lost people here. They need to be saved. You know, when I was, you know, trying to find out the population density of this area, I wasn't able to quite exactly find out, you know, and I'm not sure if this is an accurate number or not, but within a one-mile radius of this spot lives 80,000 people within one mile of this church. Now, 80,000 people, let, let's say that that number's right within one mile of our church. How many of those people do you think are saved? Right? I don't know how many people are saved. Right? Let's say there's, I don't know, 75 people here in the church, you know, including the kids and all of that. Let's say all of them were saved. Let's say, okay, we at least know 75 people are saved out of those 80,000 that are here. And let's say there are others that are saved. Maybe they go to some other church. Maybe they got saved when they were younger. They're not going to church anymore. I, I have no idea. But I mean, generously, how many could we say are really saved? The vast majority of those people are probably not saved, right? Right? They're probably not saved. And they need to be saved. How can we go out there and see them to be saved? 
I think Jesus gives us some answers when it comes to discipleship. And we're going to take a look at this idea of discipleship. This is something that Jesus did very sincerely and very strongly discipling. When he was here on earth, he discipled. This was core to what Jesus was doing when he was building his church, when he was here doing ministry, was discipleship. And if we're going to make an impact, we've got to get involved in discipleship. In discipleship. So I want to take a, a look at a few aspects of discipleship that Jesus recognized in facing this huge multitude. So first of all, we see the candidate for discipleship. The candidate. And seeing the multitudes, verse number one, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. So we know that Jesus had disciples. We know that he had many disciples, at least 12, perhaps uh, uh, more at this point. Dis uh, we know that Paul, he also discipled people. He discipled Timothy. He discipled Titus. He called them his sons of the faith. We know about these disciples of the Lord. We know about disciples of other believers as well. But what is a disciple? And what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, a disciple, first of all, goes after Jesus Christ. They are followers of the Lord, right? When Jesus went up into a mountain, what did the disciples do? They followed him. So what are disciples? Disciples are people who follow after Jesus Christ. When you think about the calling of the disciples, we don't know about all of the callings of all of these disciples and how exactly they came to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we know about Peter, James, John, and Andrew, right? We know about them. What happened? Jesus was there, and what did Jesus say? He said, follow me, and I will make you to be fishers of men. So he called to him his disciples with the calling of follow me, follow me. We know about another calling, Levi, also known as Matthew. He was a tax collector. And Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. So a disciple is somebody who follows the Lord. Not only do they follow the Lord, they grow in the Lord. So the word disciple here, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and when he was said, his disciples came unto him. That word disciple means student. It means somebody who is learning. The idea of somebody who is growing. So the idea of a disciple is somebody who is learning from the Lord. You ever see somebody who can imitate the voice of somebody else? Right? You ever see some people even make a career out of this, right? They're, they're able to manipulate their voice in order to sound like somebody else. And whenever I see it, I can't help but crack up every single time I see it. <laughs> every single time I hear one of these people, they're imitating somebody else, and when they do a really good job, it just makes you laugh. It just makes you, you know, chuckle at your, you know, to yourself about, hey, man, this guy, he sounds just like you. He sounds just like you. The mannerisms are the same. The inflections are the same. The tone is the same. It's kind of incredible. Well, for us as Christians, we ought to sound more like the Lord. That's what it means to grow in the Lord. To be a disciple means to sound more like the Lord, to behave more like the Lord, to act more like Jesus, to think more like Jesus so that other people would see, hey, he, he sounds just like Jesus. He's acting just like Jesus. He even thinks just like Jesus. So that's the idea of discipleship. We're following the Lord 
we're becoming more like the Lord because we're learning from the Lord, but also we notice that disciples give to others. Disciples give to others. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 2, we see that Paul gives to Timothy this formula of discipleship. So you see the verse there, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So this idea of discipleship is Paul is saying, okay, I received of the Lord and I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you so that you would learn of me so that you could teach it to somebody else. And you teach it to those somebody else's that can teach it to somebody else. That's the idea. So the idea of discipleship is, all right, I'm here to learn in order that I might give to somebody else, okay? So that's the idea of discipleship. The idea of discipleship is, God, I want to learn from you. I want to be more like you so that I might give to somebody else. There's this transfer process that is involved in discipleship. Disciples are giving people because they've received of the Lord. So that's the candidate. That's the kind of people that we're thinking about when you think about, okay, Jesus goes up into this mountain. When he has set, his disciples come unto him. Who are these disciples? They're people who are followers of the Lord. They're growing in the Lord. And then they are going to give to others because they have received from the Lord. So we see this candidate for discipleship. But then I want to take a look at this principle of compounding, the compounding of discipleship. So Jesus sees the multitude, and his response is he goes up into a mountain, he separates himself in a way, or at least he makes himself harder to get to, and there's fewer people there, and it's mostly his disciples that are right there closest to the Lord. So why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus separate himself really from the multitude and focus on his disciples, let's say there are 12 of them there, is because of the amplified effect of training disciples. Meaning, it's the idea of, in finance, you would say compound interest, okay? Or you might say this idea of multiplication. The idea is, okay, I have something that I want to give to others, but I'm just me, so what I can do is I can give it to two other people who can give it to other people. So now there's not just me, there's now three of us. And if I give it to these two people and they give it to other people as well, then now there are more of us able to give. So the idea of discipleship is, all right, the idea of multiplication. I can do this much, but if I train others to do the same thing, then we can do much more. It's the idea and this contrast of, uh, of kind of this math principle. So I want you to think about two different scenarios, okay? I want you to think about, all right, so let's take myself, for instance. Let's say this next year, for the next 365 days, I lead one person every day for one year, okay? So let's start, let's say we started in January 1st, okay? So if I start in January 1st, at the end of this year, I would have led... How many people to the Lord? Right, good. 365 people to the Lord. Let's say I led one person every day this year, 365 people this year. Now, I want you to take another scenario. The opposite scenario is, okay, let's say this year I don't lead 365 people to the Lord. 
I lead one person to the Lord. Okay, this year I lead one person to the Lord. The difference though is I lead only one person, but I'm going to train that person to lead somebody to the Lord. Okay, so in this scenario over here, at the end of year number one, how many people have been led to the Lord? Just one. Okay, this side is 365, this side is just one. At the end of year number two, I'm still leading one person to the Lord every single day. At the end of year number two, there are now 730 people who are saved, right? Over here, at the end of year number two, right? At the end of year number one, there's one person saved, so now there's two of us. At the end of the next year, now there are two more people saved, right? So we lead two more people to the Lord. So now there's three people saved, there's four of us in total, right? So you see the pattern, okay? So I have a chart here. I want you to take a look at this contrast, okay? So I call this the principle of addition versus multiplication. So on the one side, you see soul winning, somebody who's gonna lead somebody to the Lord, one person a day, every single day, 365 days a year. Every year, you're getting 365 more people saved every single year, okay? So that's the left side. All right, so at the end of year number three, there's 1,095 people that are saved. At the end of year number four, there's 1,460 people that are saved. At the end of year number five, there's 1,825 people saved. At the end of year number six, there's over 2,000 people that are saved. We're taking this scenario over here. I am soul winning every day. I'm leading somebody to the Lord. Man, people are getting saved. Wouldn't that be exciting? At the end of six years, 2,000 people are saved. That's great. Now, let's take the opposite scenario. I lead one person to the Lord, and I train that person to lead somebody to the Lord. At the end of year number one, there's one person. At the end of year number two, well, now there's two people, okay? At the end of year number three, there's four, right? So at the end of year number three, there's now four that, are, that have been trained, they're saved, they're, they've been trained, and now they're leading other people to the Lord, right? So at the end of year number four, there's now eight of us. At the end of year number five, there's 16. At the end of year number six, there's 32. Now, it seems like there's no competition here. If you were to think which one of these two scenarios would you want, you would want scenario number one, the one on the left, right? Most, at least just looking at this chart, okay? I have another chart that's take this out to 35 years. So let's take a look at chart, the next chart, okay? The next chart, at the end of 10 years, if I lead one person to the Lord every single day, there's going to be 3,650 people that are saved, right? That's incredible, right? At the end of 20 years, there's 7,300 people that are saved. At the end of 30 years, I will have led 10,950 people to the Lord. That's pretty good. That's incredible. Praise the Lord for that. Now I want you to see what happens on the right side with soul winning plus discipleship. Every year, each of us leads one person to the Lord and we train that one person to lead somebody else to train others also. So at the end of 10 years, there's still only 512 of us. Still a great crowd, but still only 512. At the end of 15 years though, there are 16,000 people that are saved. All right, so now at the end of 15 years, there's 16,384 of us that have been saved and now training one person to lead somebody to the Lord, right? We're going to lead somebody to the Lord and train them. At the end of 20 years, there'll be 524,000 people that are saved. At the end of 25 years, there will be 16 million people. At the end of 30 years, there's 536 million people. 
At the end of 35 years, there will be 17 billion people that are saved, okay? There's not even that many people on earth right now. <laughs> but they'll be saved, okay? <laughs> Whoever's there, they'll be saved and they'll be... Now, I understand this is, you know, this is an ideal situation. We know not everybody will be saved. But if we were to take this principle and we were to live it out, in my lifetime we could reach the whole world with the gospel. Not from when I was born to when I, when I die. Starting today, and Lord willing, if I live, you know, the years, you know, three score and ten, by the time that I die, the whole world will have heard the gospel. Isn't that incredible? Now, that principle is based simply on multiplication. So when you think about Jesus and you say, whoa, look at these thousands of people, this huge crowd, what are you going to do about it? Jesus said, here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to take my disciples, I'm going to go up into a mountain, and I am going to do something for them. When they went out and did something, they did some incredible things. Now, that sounds nice in theory. Let's talk about reality. The book of Acts has some incredible events of the first church that is there in Jerusalem. It's incredible. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved. Soon after that, Peter preaches again. 5,000 people are getting saved. It's exploding in growth. But there's a verse there right in the middle of it. In Acts chapter 6, you can look it up later, verse number 7, it says, okay, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. When we think about the first church of Jerusalem, most of us probably think about the people that got saved. And that is incredible. 3,000 people getting saved, 5,000 people getting saved. Daily people are getting saved. That is incredible. But what really spurred that growth was the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Because there's a difference between being saved and being a disciple. Amen? There's a difference between, I know I'm going to heaven, and that's wonderful. If you're saved, you are always saved. If you trusted Christ as your Savior, and you never lifted another finger for the Lord, you're still going to heaven. Praise the Lord for that. Now, hopefully we don't do that, but you'll still go to heaven. A disciple, though, is somebody who says, God saved me, and I'm following him. God has called me, so I'm going to do what he asked me to do. I'm going to follow the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to hear what he says. I'm going to receive it. I'm going to grow in it, and I'm going to do something about it. So that's the book of Acts. Let's, let's bring it a little bit more modern history. Okay? In America, we saw this principle, and you know, there was this area called the Bible Belt, right? You know, you heard about the Bible Belt. And uh, I had a friend in, uh, he was uh, in Tennessee, got married in Tennessee. And so I went out to visit and uh, to go to the wedding. I'd never been in the South before, you know, not really. You know, I kind of dri driven through and passed through. I went to Tennessee and I was like, Baptist Church, Baptist Church, Baptist Church, Baptist Church, Baptist Church. <laughs> what is this place, you know? And the South, I know, is not the same as it used to be. But the way it came to be is from this principle. So many of you will have heard about George Whitfield. 
He was an evangelist, came to America seven different occasions, preached the gospel. A lot of people got saved. It's wonderful. On one of those occasions, when he was in Connecticut, there was a man there who heard the gospel, and at the age of 39, he got saved. His name was Shubal Stearns. Mr. Stearns hears the gospel in Connecticut at the age of 39 and gets saved. He now begins to join the church, begins to serve in the church, and he hears this call, this call to preach the gospel. And so he heard about, you know what, we've got to go do something. And this was something that was uh, a, a big part of American history. When you go back to the Northeast and you look at all of those old colleges, so many, pretty much all of those colleges were started with the intention of training preachers. So when George Whitfield was here, a lot of these colleges that you know about were started with the intention of training preachers to preach the gospel. Princeton was started during that time. Dartmouth was started during that time. Brown was started during that time. Columbia was started during that time. Rutgers University was started during that time. These colleges were built with the intention of preaching, of training preachers to preach the gospel, to go out to preach to others so that they might be saved, start churches, and train others as well. Those colleges, they've, they've gone way off the mark from there. But that was the beginning point. And Shubal Stearns was a part of this whole big movement of people getting saved and, and growing. He heard the gospel, got saved. Ten years later, he hears the call, I've got to go do something. So from Connecticut, he starts to move south, and he's going through to uh, Virginia at the age of 49. So at the age of 49, he and his wife, they have no kids, and a bunch of their relatives, like his parents, some siblings, there's 16 of them that are moving down into Virginia. While in Virginia, he receives a letter from some friends in North Carolina who said this, The work of God was great in preaching to an ignorant people who had little or no preaching for a hundred miles and no established meetings. But now the people were so eager to hear that they would come 40 miles each way when they could have opportunity to hear a sermon. So here, somebody writes him a letter and says, things are happening. People want to hear the preaching of the word of God. And he says, all right, let's go. So he goes to North Carolina, him and there's 16 that are there. They go to the city, uh, this little town, really, this place called Sandy Creek, North Carolina, and they planted Sandy Creek Baptist Church. By all accounts, he had no formal degree, but he was passionate about the gospel. It was written of him that his soul was red with zeal to carry light into these dark parts. He and his preachers took to the fields and towns, and for them, religion was real. Hell was real, Jesus was real, and you needed to be born again. I mean, this was the passion of this man, Shubal Stearns, going to North Carolina, and he planted this church. The story is told about an individual who was going to be baptized. He was saved. His name is John Stewart. Huge guy. And, and some people in the town had heard that Shubal Stearns was this kind of shorter, littler guy. And so they thought this would be fun to watch this little guy try to dunk this big guy in the water. And so one of these men, his name was L. Nathan, L. Nathan Davis shows up with eight or ten, you know, a bunch of his friends with the idea of mocking or just to see the spectacle. So there's a huge crowd that's there, and L. Nathan goes into the crowd, and as Shubal Stearns is preaching the gospel, he notices something's happening. And he looks around, and he notices that people are trembling, people are falling down, people are praying, people are weeping, 
And he goes back out to his friends, and his friends are like, what's going on? And he says, I don't know, but I'm not going back in there. Well, apparently, he couldn't help himself, and he did go back in there, and he heard the gospel, and he got saved. And he began to preach the gospel. There's, it, it, Stearns was there. He preached the gospel. He went north a little bit and, and preached at another place called Grassy Creek. I don't know what it is about North Carolina and Creek, Sandy Creek, Grassy Creek, Abbott's Creek. He's starting all of these places here, planting churches in place after place, sending people out. And he dies. He started this church at the age of 49. He dies 17 years later. And after 17 years, there were 42 churches that had been started out of his church. It's been said that in the first 50 years of the existence of Sandy Creek Baptist Church, 1,000 churches were started out of his ministry alone. That he trained up preachers who went out and started churches and started other churches and started other churches. That's the principle Matthew chapter 28 gives us the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. All right, this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, all right, you go out there and preach, you baptize them, add them into the church, and then you teach them to do the things that I've told for you to do. That's the principle of discipleship. So we see that what Jesus is doing is he's bringing close to him his disciples, the, these candidates for discipleship. Then he's leaning on this principle of compounding. And then we're going to see the contents of discipleship. Okay, so Jesus brings close his disciples. But what does he do with his disciples in verse number two? It says, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, and we're going to get into this message, this sermon in just a few moments. But what did he teach them? He taught them the word, right? Jesus is God. So when Jesus is speaking, he's literally giving to them the word of God. So Jesus, seeing the multitude, takes his disciples, brings them apart, and he teaches to them the word of God. I referenced this verse earlier in Acts chapter number 6 regarding the first church, that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, right? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't we love to see the number of disciples in our church to be multiplied greatly? I would love to see that, and I'm sure that all of you would as well. I didn't read the first part of that verse, though, earlier. Acts chapter 6 verse number 7 begins with this, and the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Oh, we have this huge multitude of people out there that have a need, they need to be saved. You know, we, we see all of that's going out there, on, on out there in the world. What do we do about it? We've got to get disciples and teach them the word of God. The word of God must increase when the word of God is increased the number of disciples will multiply. So we see that disciples are saved followers of God who receive the word of God, they apply the word of God, and they share the word of God. So that's the idea of discipleship. So just to make it really practical, that's one reason why your personal devotions are so important. Reading your Bible, getting into the word on a daily basis is important because why? 
That's what disciples do. What do disciples do? They hear the word of God and they apply the word of God. How can we apply the word of God if we don't hear the word of God? So if we want to be disciples, we've got to get into the word of God consistently. You want to make a difference out there in the world? Where do we begin? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Get into the Bible. Apply the Bible. That's what we can do. Another practical area is come to your church services regularly and consistently. Okay, one amen. All right. <laughs> From the staff member. <laughs> okay. All right. The staff member said, amen, we should be in church. Amen, we should be here in church. All right. Why do we have church services every week? Why do we have it Sunday morning, Sunday night? Why do we have life connections? Why do we have a midweek sermon? Why do we have all of these things? I came to church already on a Sunday morning. I got my word of God. All right. I'm good for the week. Well, the reason why we have multiple church services throughout the week is because if we're going to be disciples, I want to feed on the Word of God. I don't want to be devouring it. I want to have it within me and to be a part of me. That's the emphasis of these church services. We don't come to these church services just to hang out, although that is a part of fellowship and being a part of a church. We don't come just to do this or that. We come with the number one priority— First of all, of glorifying God, but also to hear the word of God. That's the center point of every single church service. So why do we do all of these things? Because we need disciples. Amen? Amen. We need disciples. Not just people who said, all right, check, I did my religious duty for the week. I'm good. Now I can go drink. I can go watch this filthy stuff on the internet. I can just go hang out with my friends. I can do whatever I want because I did my check mark here at the beginning of the week. I went to my church service. Well, I'm glad that you're here, but we need more than that. We need disciples. We need people who will commit themselves to the Lord. We need that. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. All right, there's a huge crowd of people that have a need. We need disciples. And Jesus is going to teach his disciples. Now, this is the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to try to preach the Sermon on the Mount today, okay? I've got maybe five or ten minutes left. But if I could summarize a few of the big principles of the Word of God here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and just try to break it down and pull out a few big principal pieces, I encourage you to read it more in depth later. Maybe even this afternoon, just sit down and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But there's a few kind of big ideas here. First of all, we see the disciple and his privilege. It's a privilege to be a disciple. The very first word of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is the word blessed. It's a blessing to be able to be a disciple. It's a blessing to be able to follow God. It's a blessing to be able to serve God. It's a blessing to be a disciple of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's a blessing to be able to serve the Lord. It's a blessing to be able to make a difference. That's what he says in verse number 13. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost the savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but, under a but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Jesus begins with the privilege of discipleship. It's a privilege to be able to serve the Lord. It's a privilege to be able to make a difference for God. It's a privilege 
to be able to glorify God. That's what he says in verse number 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So Jesus begins with this idea of it's a privilege to be a disciple. It's a privilege. We also see the disciple and his precepts. Jesus begins to give some clear instruction about what does it mean to act like God? What does it mean to think like God? Getting further into it, we're going to skip a number of verses, but just to pinpoint a few. Verse number 21, Ye have heard that it hath been said of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Verse number 27, Ye have heard that it hath been said of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Verse number 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So here is Jesus giving some specific instruction, the precepts. This, this we will call the law. And these laws of God tell us what God is like. What's the point of the law? In many ways, it is to describe to us what God is like. Because he says in verse number 45, that, so at the end of this whole discourse of, you heard it said this way, but I'm telling you, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say unto you, if you look on a woman and lust with her in your, in your heart, you have committed adultery already, all right? So what's the point of all of this? Verse 45, that ye may be like the children of your father, which is in heaven. Isn't that the point of discipleship? That we would be more like the Lord? For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you have more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So here is Jesus giving this discourse. Why should we be good to those that hate us? Because that's what God does. God is good to those, even to those who hate him. God is merciful to them. What are disciples? Disciples are those that are more like the Lord. The disciple we've seen, and his privilege. We also see his precepts. We also see his purity. If we're going to be real disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be real. We have to be real. We can't be fake followers. We've got to be real followers. That's what he addresses in, verse number, in chapter number six. He describes a real believer, a real Christian in his giving. Take heed that you do not alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Don't give because other people will look up to you and think, wow, what a great individual. You give because you want to give to the Lord. He describes a real Christian and his praying. Verse number six. But when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee openly all right so when we're talking about praying not just praying in public now praying in private he describes a real christian and his fasting verse number 16 moreover when you fast be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast verily i say unto you they have their reward 
So you see all of these principles. And it leads down to verse number 19, this big principle of lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. All right, be real. Verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. So we understand what God is saying to us, his precepts, describing to us himself what we should be like. He's telling us we should be real, and then he tells us our procedures. Verse number one of chapter seven. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. Again, be real, be genuine. Verse number 12, therefore all things whatsoever uh, ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so Jesus is going through this whole discourse and he finishes up with verse number 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that rock, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these things of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and his floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So Jesus brings to him his disciples. Those that are committed, understanding this principle of compounding multiplication, and it gives to them the word of God with the expectation that they would receive it and that they would live it. So that's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. There's a huge crowd of people that have a desperate need and they need help now. What does Jesus do? He goes up into a mountain and he teaches his disciples. So what can we learn from that? What can we learn from that? What we can learn from that is if we want to make a multiplied difference, we need to first of all be disciples and then we need to train disciples. That's what we need to do. We need to be disciples. First of all, we can't train disciples if we're not already disciples ourselves. We can't help somebody to follow the Lord if we're following something else. We've got to follow the Lord first. As we follow the, uh, uh, follow the Lord, we receive the word, we apply the word, then we can take somebody else, show them the word of God. If they're not saved, lead them to the Lord so that they would be saved, and then train them so that they might teach others also. So here's the principle for us. Because our church is here in order to make a difference. Amen? That's why we're here. We're not here just to hang out with our friends. I have friends here, but I'm not just here to hang out with my friends. Our church is here in order to make a difference, okay? So if we're going to make a difference, what do we need? We need disciples. That's a big part, the major part of the ministry here. Major part of the ministry here is disciples. Let's be disciples. Let's train disciples. Let's come with the idea of, all right, I don't have anybody disciple to disciple I'm going to find somebody. I'm going to lead somebody to the Lord. When I lead them to the Lord, I'm going to disciple them. And you might say, well, I don't know enough of the word of God to be able to disciple them. Hey, that's a good clue to you. 
you should study the Bible, <laughs> amen? So that you could train somebody and say, oh, you know what? And there is a lot of times, even me, it's my job to study the word of God. And people ask me questions. I'm like, that's a great question. If I say it's a great question, it probably means I don't know the answer. <laughs> Let me go find out, all right? That's a great question. Let me go see if I can find out. <laughs> Let me study the Bible. I don't know. What does that passage mean? That's a great question, <laughs> you know? I don't know all of the answers. You don't know all of the answers, but we don't need to know all of the answers. We just need to go to the Lord. Follow God. Help others to follow God so that they could help others to follow as well. When we do that, as you saw on the chart, 10 years from now, we might grow just a little bit. 20 years from now, though, people will be like, whoa, what happened here? Whoa, what's going on? 30 years from now, people will be like, it all started there. That's where it started. So that's what God desires to do with our church, have disciples, and train more.